Hey guys, before we start the show, I just want to give a quick shout out to another podcast. Hey there, my name is Andy, host of the History of Africa podcast. If you like learning about the history of the Asia Pacific, I bet you'd also like learning about the history of the African continent. Our current season is focused on ancient Egypt. If that sounds appealing to you, come check out the History of Africa podcast here on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website, historyofafricapodcast.blogspot.com. Back to you, Craig. You are listening to the Pacific War Channel's podcast. If you wish to see the video version of these podcasts, go to the Pacific War Channel on YouTube. Well, hello there. Welcome back to the Pacific War Channel podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Asia-Pacific War of 1937 to 1945 and all the major events that led up to it. And I am here yet again with my poor friend, Justin. Help me, people. Help me. I'm being held in a cage captive in the basement. And this is going to be a Zoom call, but hopefully my audio is not going to be absolute garbage like last time. I'm using a laptop instead of my PC. I checked three times and used my studio mic with a $60 adapter to get it into the laptop because this is for an actual film camera. And if this doesn't work, I'm going to cry later. All right. For those of you in the audience, we're going to be putting out a poll this week as to whether the shitty audio actually helps Craig's pronunciation or keeps it right about the same. So feel free to uh, leave a comment what you think on that one. And, uh, and pretty soon, I don't know when this is going to happen, but I have a contact. He approached me. He wants to do a podcast specifically on history of China. I got it down to the Taiping Rebellion, uh, but he wants to go over Chinese characters and uh, everything I mispronounced. He's actually making spreadsheets to help me. And uh, we'll see if it works because I don't think it's going to. I can barely pronounce English words. But this podcast is going to be on my episode on the Boshin War. And this is going to be different than our usual podcast because drum roll, Justin, how did you find it? Well, if you folks are anything like me and you failed every history class you've ever taken, you were probably like me at the end of this episode when you said, what the hell just happened? I did not understand a damn thing. So this episode is going to be a little bit more about me just asking questions and trying to figure out what happened because there was way too many names thrown out there different factions of I don't know who's fighting for who, who's allied with who. And it was very, very confusing to me. So let's start off just by asking my dear friend Craig here, who the hell is fighting with who here? Because you threw out so many names. I, you know, we get that it's Shogunate versus the Emperor, but you threw out so many names of different factions and allies and small groups of armies that were having little battles here and there that I completely lost track of who's fighting for who and who's with who. And for all of those who are not audio listeners who actually watch this on the YouTube, I'm very grateful because it doesn't do so on YouTube. I have to ask Justin, you're an audience member. Can you see what's on the screen? Should be a picture. I see a big fat sumo guy stomping somebody in the head. Perfect. This is where we're going to start. So Justin spoke to me before we started this podcast and he said, I have no idea what was going on in the episode and it's actually the nature of this event it's been covered by only one other youtuber that i've seen and i did uh, watch his content and his was pretty confusing as well because it's actually really confusing to be honest and this is a war that took place just over the course of less less than a year i think 
Uh, but I will try to summarize and give the 15-minute episode. It was more of a 45-minute podcast. While uh, Justin can just pitch in and throw more questions my way, because I'm sure he's going to have much more questions as we go along. Oh, yeah. I got the notepad out, buddy, because uh, I'm going to need some diagrams or something to help me with this one. But uh, let's see what we can get. So start me off. Shogunate versus Emperor. What, what, you know, we kind of know what kicked all this off. But who, who exactly is helping each side with this? So the Boshin War occurred in 1868 to 1869. So to confuse everything more, and I'm doing this in a very cohesive manner, mind you, we had uh, talked about the, uh, the Meiji Restoration, which occurs throughout this whole thing. And this is a rapid right. modernization of Japan. Yep. Uh, the Boshin War occurs early-ish on. And it's really just one of many skirmishes that got out of hand because there was a lot of rebellions uh, among samurai and stuff but this was the the major turning point of uh the restoration effort so what had happened was as usual we had people who didn't like each other so as we know everything was kicked off when our friend commodore matthew c perry showed up and opened up japan forcefully when he began to make treaties with the Japanese, he wasn't alone. All the other players came to the table eventually. You got Britain, France, Russia, Prussia eventually, uh, even Italy and stuff. And they made what is called the unequal treaties. Now, these unequal treaties, as we have already gone over, opening up ports, residents of these Western nations can live freely, religious freedom within the ports. The residents will abide by their own nation's laws, thus really putting a foot down on, you know, Japanese sovereignty. Right. And right. of course, international regulation of duties for the import export. So the Japanese were in control and thus obviously unequal was unequal trade. The Japanese were being really, screwed over it was uh terrible actually it was really hard for them to economically uh get back on yeah. their feet but they well, did we do it fast we covered a lot of that in your last episode mm. so right. why i'm bringing this all up people were not happy go figure so out of the ishin shishi and this is uh, a word for the the nobles of japan the great thinkers great warriors the biggest most important people in japan they okay. all got together and they talked and they said Half of them are like, this is complete bull. Let's get rid of them. We're going to expel the barbarians. This started the Sono Joy movement. They wanted to revere the emperor, which was a traditional thing that wasn't really being done at that time. It was, but it wasn't. The emperor wasn't ever really in control, but they wanted to go back to a new sense of the old ways, and they wanted to expel the foreign barbarians. Okay. Westerners. And that's kind of what I wanted to ask is when it came to this modernization of Japan, uh, the emperor was on the side of the let's keep things old and traditional and the shogunate were more of the we're going to modernize and be like the Europeans type of thing. So what ended up happening is the emperor is a hostage in almost all of Japanese history. While we're told that the emperor is in control at times, he's never really. There's always a court around using him like a puppet. So for centuries at this point during the tokugawa rule because it's a tokugawa shogunate for quite a few hundred years at this point uh the emperor right. is kind of hidden in a room and he might show his grace once in a while but he never says anything political he never does anything this is actually against um 
his rule. He's not supposed to. It's kind of an unsaid rule. So the emperor isn't doing anything at this point. The shogun and his supporters tell these people who are so no joy, um, we have to sign these treaties. There's no way that we can fight these people. It's in our best interest to sign now, work alongside them and figure out some way to, you know, slowly get rid of the unequalness. Okay. You know, they were realists in honesty. Now, you would like to believe that these are just two sides bickering over these principles. But what's really going on is the Tokugawa family is in charge. The shogun is of the Tokugawa family. Right. He's a very powerful man. He has a great military and he has a lot of land, wealth and prosperity. People don't like that and they want to grab it for themselves. And I mean, that's not to say that that's exactly why they did it, but yeah, kind of. Here, I'm going to change the picture while I'm at it. Uh, where am I? So, the Sono Joy faction sought to dissolve the Shogun, thus get rid of his position, right. and revere the Emperor. What is not often said as much is they also wanted the Tokugawa Shogun to leave his whole family's residence, give up his lands and everything. Yeah, so not just you're not in control anymore, but we're going to take everything you own. Exactly. Just, so as uh, you can imagine. That, that's a little bit of a demotion, yeah. So what inevitably happens is we got half of the greatest people in Japan saying, we need to sign these treaties and just do this. And they're the shogun side. We're going to call them the shogunate side. And the other side is the Sono Joy. The emperor, uh, Komei, at this point, he hears about all this and he's like, revere the emperor so i get to come back okay expel the barbarians he's like yeah i don't like them he's pretty naive mind you too so he goes along with this and he does something he's not supposed to he starts to publicly speak about it and eventually it's like you said he gives support to these people who are against the shogun he even tries to stop the secession of the new uh, shogun to come into power like he was basically it's not as if they're voting or anything but he was trying to like halt the shogun and make it seem like he doesn't want the shogun to be around anymore not good not a good thing to do as emperor which is a little bit odd when you kind of compare it to more modern politics where normally it's the head the whoever the up-and-coming politician is or the the public figure that has a vision has a view and he gathers supporters to support him but this was more it seems like everybody else just telling the emperor like go be in charge do 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 stuff it's like a, a reverse coup yeah, because exactly. The emperor's not in charge, and he just wants to take back his throne, even though he technically already has it. So, right. basically, before all of this happens, the, the shogun, he's no idiot. He sees what's happening. He goes, yep. you know, much like most of Japanese, the doors have been open since the 1850s, and he's looking, he's like, okay, I need to do something about the situation. I need to get someone to help me with my military because these are really strong Westerners. And he's like, what nation's the strongest right now? And uh, it turns out to be France at the time because the Shogun was looking around the 50s. So France had just won a war, uh, the Crimean War of 1853-1856 against Russia. And France had also won the Second Italian War of Independence in 1859 against the Austrian Empire. So France, and France historically has always been a big boy. They've had the best military standing for a long time, 19th century. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's funny that's to say. The, 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 considering what everybody says now, that's really funny to hear. But uh... World War II, they had the strongest standing army. They just got outplayed. 
Well, it's another discussion. And well, it'll yep. come into the Pacific War, mind you. And what's funny is the Shogun at the time and his political advisors, they go and they get a military dispatchment of these French to come and train their army. This is all before right. 1870 when France loses the Franco-Prussian War, which is one of the most famous wars in human history. And the Japanese quickly got rid of their French military advisors and changed them up for Prussians. But that is after the Boshin War. So they have uh, French military advisors. So these officers are coming and they're training their military in the use of certain firearms. And right. I'm going to just crack open a list because I'm not a specialist with weapons, but I did want people to know. So basically for the Shogunate, they were training. I mean, they had almost every weapon you can imagine, but the most notable is they have a Dreiss needle gun. Uh, it's actually a Prussian 1841 breech loading rifle. They had uh, Chassepot rifles from France, 1866, also known as a Fusil Model, uh, also breech loading, given to. Fusil uh, is the word you're fusil looking for. Excuse moi. Yeah, imagine if uh, I had to do a French podcast, that'd be worse. Uh, <laughs> given to them by Napoleon III. Nice right. to him. And uh, they also had some other weapons, but these were the main ones that they had. And uh, they would have the majority of guns actually during this war, ironically. Right. So they're trained. They actually have a French advisor called Jules Brunet, uh, who is the inspiration for Tom Cruise's character in The Last Samurai, which is a weird story I'll get to in the next episode. Right. And uh, it's looking like top, top army, everything. So the Shogun has his own private military. And the Shogun at this time, he just comes into power, is Yoshinobu. Uh, the previous Shogun dies, and the Emperor actually dies, Komei. And Komei is replaced by Emperor Meiji. Us. That's why we call it the Meiji Restoration during this period. Right. So Yoshinobu is uh, immediately insulted and attacked as soon as he takes the throne because of the Sono Joy people. And then right. eventually Kyoto becomes kind of a battleground. The Shogun, he gets a secret, well, not secret, there are a special military police called the Shinsengumi, elite samurais, to kind of hold right. Kyoto. Yeah. The episode, yeah. You know, he, they're, they're there to just keep the peace and to enforce the Shogun, uh, his, his rule. They actually go around just killing people who might be against the Shogun, which is, you know, another thing that they did. And, um, yeah, the Shogun runs into some issues because one domain in the South called Choshu Domain is openly basically antagonistic towards his government. So he's okay. like, I'm going to make an expedition military. I'm going to attack him. So he decides he's going to attack him and he's going to use forces with the rival of Choshu, which is Satsuma. Satsuma and Choshu don't get along at this point. Uh, historic rivalry going on for a long time. Okay. Satsuma's like, yeah, we're, we're all going to, we're going to do that, whatever. Satsuma has a secret alliance with Choshu because Satsuma doesn't like the Shogun. And Satsuma has been getting arms from the British and uh, a Scottish merchant named Glover. And they have some of the best artillery at this moment. And they're secretly well-armed. And they're arming the Choshu. The expedition goes completely to shit. Yoshinobu probably figures it out halfway before there's an official alliance, which is the Satchu Alliance, between uh, Choshu and, and Satsuma. Eventually, Tosa ends up joining, which is a smaller member. So okay. these forces are now openly hostile towards Yoshinobu's army. And Yoshinobu is basically hiding within Kyoto. They come over. They attack him. They end up burning his residence to the ground. He burns the Satsuma residence in Kyoto to the ground, which is kind of petty and funny. 
and he flees to Osaka where he has a, a fantastic castle. So basically this is the civil war is basically going to start soon. It hasn't yet officially. This is kind of like small grievances at this point, but Yoshinobu is obviously very angry and he sends his military force to march on Kyoto. Right. This is where the civil war actually begins with the battle of Toba Fushimi, which is a famous accident. A bunch of his vanguard show up to a bridge. They see a bunch of Satsuma guys just like dug in with like a Gatling gun, mind you. And they're like, we're, we're just walking by peacefully, you know, just let us through. Right. And they think they're going to wave them off. Satsuma just opens fire and just obliterates them because these guys weren't expecting a fight. They sent a bunch of like sword and pickaxe fighters in the front and they didn't even have any of their guns loaded. They literally had like ammo apparently in their belts. They hadn't loaded yet. So they got beaten pretty bad. Yeah. Well, when you're talking about a single shot loaded rifle that's not even loaded against a Gatling gun, it's not going to go well. No, sir. Uh, okay. And also, I'll just say here, it's very confusing when it comes to guns, but to just get this off the bat, both sides of the Civil War have an incredible amount of guns. And I will say it like this, the Imperial side, which is the Satsuma and Choshu side, they use some kind of different guns, but still both sides are using these guns so they have mini rifles from france they have snyder einfield rifles spencer repeating rifles which uh, i think choshu are using it's an american lever action gun and that's it's pretty scary and the scariest i would say is the smith and wesson uh handgun it's a like a big colt revolver that 1863 from american civil war that's like that's some scary stuff for that day but Mm -hmm. the main difference between the shogun who has more guns than them and the we'll call them the imperials satsuma got their hands on some armstrong field guns and this is arguably the best artillery around we actually talked about this in the opium wars it's what right majorly won them the shogun doesn't have these yet so early on this artillery just it completely knocked out everything the shogun could throw at them it didn't matter that they had more guns now where did the emperor get his hands on these things Oh, it wasn't him. Setsuma was every single domain in Japan was independent, dealing with a bunch of random nations. And Setsuma had attacked the British because remember, they were the Sono Joy movement. I'm just going to change pictures again. Right, right, right. That's Setsuma, the samurai in this picture. So they shot. And then they basically said, we're sorry, and then bought all kinds of guns off the British. Yeah, it's ironic that the people that were going to expel the barbarians got their asses handed to them in a minor skirmish and said, oh, ooh. You guys beat us real good. So they bought some weapons off an interesting character who's a Scottish merchant. And they got well-armed and well-trained. Uh, the British, uh, it's, I can say it. France was back in the Shogun. The British didn't like that. They used this as a quasi, like a little proxy war. So they were kind of like hedging their bets a little bit on uh, beating the Shogun just because France was involved. And um, Yoshinobu would appeal to Western nations saying, hey, I'm the, I'm the shogun of this country. Like, this can't happen. I'm the real government. And he, he spoke to the British ambassador, who was like the number one ambassador. He's like, you, you need to do something. And the ambassador also goes, oh, no, it's our policy as Westerners to, uh, we're going to stay away. We're going to let you deal with your own civil war because we can't possibly dabble in this, which is cute of a British ambassador. And it Because just they dabbled show. in pretty much everything Asia in those years. Oh, yeah. As we've learned in previous episodes. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe and, that was uh, 
is it possible that was kind of the British way to uh, kind of thumb their nose at uh, France by inadvertently trying to kick them out of Japan? Uh, basically, if I think, and I could be wrong about this, I think if Britain actually took an active stance instead of doing it in the shadows, uh, it would have looked like a real proxy, like an actual proxy war with France, whereas this was kind of just poking the bear a little bit. And France might have, you know, said, hey, you are actually supporting that side. So whoever wins, you know, pays out, right? So Britain didn't want, Britain didn't want any real skin in the game. And they were selling arms to both sides. They just cut the Shogun off halfway through the war. Mm. And uh, I mean, from that point on, basically to summarize a lot of it, the early battles, even though the Shogun had a very well-trained military under French officers, arguably a much better navy with civil warships from America that were pretty impressive. And he had the Shin Sengumi, the best samurai. He was losing his battles. They were getting crushed. And it really, it, it, it comes down to a lot of different factors, but it was, I would say it's artillery that really won these early battles. And Yoshinobu, he eventually, he has to step down. He goes into house arrest. He agrees to give up his property, his lands and everything. And he doesn't die or anything. He actually lives a, a long life and he comes back into government power and they give him back his title, like his family name. But as Shogun, it's over. The war didn't end, though. Uh, a lot of northern uh, domains were loyal to the Shogun and they didn't see the you know, color on the wall. And they're like, you know what? We're, we're still going to war. We're going to fight the southern invaders, the uh, Setsuma Choshu, because they're from southern domains. They're like, we're going to fight to... I guess, reclaim everything for the Shogun, which to me didn't make too much sense. And uh, the French military advisors were told, get out, get out now. But Jules Burnett and a few others said, nope, we're going to stay. We're going to help fight with these guys. And they go and they found a, a new republic called the Izo Republic. Right. And I heard you mention that in your episode. Yeah. It's really weird. It was a quasi-American republic. And technically the first actual democratic vote occurred in Japan in the Republic. Yeah. Any questions about that? There's a lot I know about that actually. Yeah. Well, I was just kind of wondering why the French would want to back a semi a quasi American Republic because they weren't exactly seeing eye to eye in that period either. Were they? Oh, actually no France, you know, people have a weird thing, with Fran France, remember France helped the revolutionary war. So just to, mess with Britain. And even during the Civil War, France kind of pulled the little strings, although it was with the South and the North. But uh, France and America, they had unique, they had a unique relationship because the French Revolution, the American Revolution, you can't talk about one without the other. They're significant. They're, they're, yeah, they're that like makes brother sense. And sister. Right. But uh, as for why Jules Burnett said, hey, you should have a, a a country kind of built on the American system. I don't know. Maybe he just believed in that form of democracy. A lot of evidence suggests that he was the, um, the dictator of all this and he was using the Japanese as puppets. So a lot of evidence suggests that he was actually much more nefarious than we think, but they okay. create this Republic. And did they actually, but they didn't control all of Japan with this Republic or were they just kind of secluded to one area or. Oh, here I brought up the map. This is a lot easier. So Hokkaido, I'm waving my hand like an idiot in front of my own screen. Hokkaido is the northern island, this big, massive island up here. Okay, yeah. 
So, um, I mean, they don't really have it all, but uh, they end up fighting on the mainland in the north, but their domains quickly get eaten one by one and they have to sail. Um, they do have a, a navy and it's not that bad. It actually could contest the uh, show uh, the Imperial Navy, excuse me. And uh, yeah, they, they go to Hokkaido Island and they form the Ezo Republic. Um, so they pretty much just did their own thing on their little island and here you go. They tried to attack uh, with their navy and they tried a extremely hilarious maneuver. So in a place called Miyako Bay, the Imperials landed their fleet and they were just at anchored. Yeah. And what happened was, I guess Jules Burnett came up with this. He said, put the American flag on one of our ships, go really close to them. And then at the last second, take our flag down and put the Ezo Republic, Ezo Republic flag and ram into their ship and attack them. This is kind of like an old pirate tactic, right? Oh, dear sweet Lord. It worked brilliantly. Only problem was their ship when they rammed was so much taller and bigger that if they tried to jump down, they would like break their legs basically. So they could only get like one person at a time. And there was a Gatling gun. There was a Gatling gun on the other ship. So they just got massacred. They had to flee. They almost won a naval battle though doing this. Wow. Okay, so they formed the Republic on their little island. Meanwhile, what's happening in the mainland? In the mainland, the Emperor is touring. He's showing his face. People are losing their minds. It's like it's like the Beatles the first time. They're like, oh my God, that's the Emperor. This is amazing. He's spreading all this information about how things are going to be great. There's going to be a restoration. There's going to be a charter oath. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. There's a lot of talk, a lot of talk. They don't know what they're doing yet. And they're consolidating okay. their Navy and their military to go and attack Hokkaido so that they can take down the Izo Republic because this is like the last bastion against them. Okay, so the emperor is basically having a victory parade before the victory. And uh, these guys are on the island plotting and scheming. Okay, so where do they go from there? Oh, man. Dude, I like this picture. This is representative of one of the northern domains. They had a Gatling gun, actually, for the Shoguns. We're still calling them the, the Shogun site, even though Shogun's gone. But uh, they actually had some Gatling guns at this battle, and they, they put up a great defense. It was at Nogata. Okay. No, God, I believe that's pronounced. And uh, yeah, they had a fortress there and they, they bled them dry. And uh, a female fighting force was there also fighting for them. Very famous. I might do an episode on it that fought off uh, the Imperials, but they lost and uh, they had to give up their castle. So after this, uh, obviously the Imperials, they took their Navy. They went all the way up. I'll go back to the map right here to Hokodate. And they attacked both the navy that was there as well as the fortresses, which was a very famous fortress. You can see today, it's very big and interesting. Oh, here. This is a painting representing the last battle of Hokodate. I'm probably mispronouncing that. I, am, I apologize to my Japanese okay. viewers. And uh, it was a fantastic last battle. Uh, the last leader of the Shinsengumi dies. Um, they end up surrendering. It's... Uh, it's nights out for the Ezo Republic, obviously. Um, interestingly enough, immediately after this is all over, you would expect a lot of people to, you know, get their heads cut off and a lot of like uh, grievance killings. Um, everyone, that's not that's not what went down. Uh, I think I put one last picture. This is an interesting picture of a lot of them together. I know you cannot really make out who's there. Uh, Yoshin. Is Yoshinobu in there? I know Meiji's in there. Uh, he might be there. 
But uh, basically, everyone said, we're going to live and let live. All the people, whether they won the war or lost the war, were, most of them were given positions in the government, the new government. Mind you, the actual victors were given the best positions. So we're talking... The new government well, under the emperor, right? Under the emperor, yes. Yeah. Uh, there was a provisional government led by uh, three of the great elders. That's including Saigo Takamori, the most famous samurai we'll say uh, well anyways he's the last samurai that's his title he forms a provisional government and that would have been the end of my episode i believe i don't think i go into depth about it but the boshin war opened up a whole other can of worms because if we go all the way back to the beginning of this conversation the whole point was so no joy emperor is put back into power let's expel the barbarians they didn't expel no barbarians there is no way. Right. This is ridiculous. And they threw that real quick. They threw that away. And a lot of people, like Saigo Takamori, did not like that because they believed in it. Although that isn't the main reason why he's going to get angrier later. That's part of it. So, in essence, all these people fought a civil war over an issue that none of them really gave a shit about in the end. Because <laughs> no one actually backed it. Yeah, well, that. I mean, I think you went over it pretty clearly when you said they, they, they tried to take a little pot shot at the British and it didn't go very well. well and if not. anything, and if anything, that trade relationship they established is kind of what won them the war. Ironically enough, and I, for the purposes of this podcast, have a little bit of notes on that because I, I couldn't talk about, as anyone who watched the episode, it was 15 minutes long on purpose. I'm trying to compete on YouTube and my episodes are very long. Um, I couldn't talk about a lot of things I wanted to. So the person in question who sold to Setsuma, his name was Thomas Blake Glover. He was a Scottish merchant during this period and he actually worked for Jardin Matheson and was a little bit of a part of the Opium Wars. So Little, uh, Jardin Matheson, you want to refresh my memory? Because that's... Uh... They were a company that kind of came about just before, I believe, the first Opium War. Two businessmen. And they pushed Parliament to basically cause the Opium War because they were major smugglers. And that was their business. They were in the Opium business. They kind of took over after the, um, uh, the, uh, the East India... My God, East India Trading Company. East India Trading Company. After the East India Trading Company lost their monopoly, um, anyone was allowed to trade in the ports. Uh, Jardin Matheson, they, they took a lion's share. And then they became arms dealers. So this guy worked for them as a clerk, apparently. And all of a sudden, when Satsuma attacked the British, he showed up and he was like, hey, I could sell you some guns from a company called Armstrong & Company. Armstrong field guns. And he also sold them a, an assortment of stuff like mini rifles. He sold to the Choshu clan. Uh, of course, Armstrong field guns. He believed he sold some Gatling guns, Smith and Western. I mean, it didn't matter where the, where the guns came from as far as countries are concerned. He was selling American, British, French, whatever was on the market, Prussian. A lot of Prussian weapons that go unnoticed. <laughs> but this one man, he was responsible for basically arming the Satcho Alliance. Like he... He's an interesting character. I don't know too, too much more about him, but I do know that he doesn't go away. He ends up arming the new government after the Boshin War. 
He's one of the main people. Really? Yeah, so he's like Nicolas Cage from Lords of War. Yeah, I'll have to do some research on this guy, see what I can dig up, because uh, sounds a little bit uh, cloak and daggerish, you know, sneaky, sneaky arms dealer kind of popping he's, in and out of history there. But he's a, uh, Scot- he's a Scottish merchant. He's dirty as they come, and I can say that my family's was gone. Dirty. And huh. uh, yeah, so in essence, that was the Boshan War in a nutshell. As you can imagine, putting that into a 15-minute video, like my friend from Extra History, very good channel. If for some reason, he ever watches, I doubt he would. Uh, he did an excellent job, and he's much more humorous than me. I find I'm a little bit too dry. I need to work on that. But uh, I found his episode was as confusing as mine, too. There's so much to cover, and it's bizarre and wacky. You have these two sides that kind of interchange and flip, and you're when you think, oh, the emperor, you think the emperor's already in control, but technically he's not. It's really weird. Yeah. Well, I understand the idea of uh, a monarch, so to speak, not exactly making all the decisions. But like I said, what I found to be more of the weird part is it wasn't the emperor himself who was pushing to gain the power back in Japan. It was more the people behind him telling him, like, you should go do this. And he was more or less just a a show puppet for the crowds. But uh, He's um, arguably the most important emperor. Now, I'm guessing, uh, you know, you spoke a little bit that some parts of this were what inspired the Tom Cruise movie, The Last Samurai. But I'm guessing that whole thing about the emperor being like a 10-year-old kid was a little bit exaggerated or? Uh, no, he, I believe the movie tries to make him to be 16 or 15, I'm not mistaken. He, he would have been that age. It's one of the few things that's accurate about that movie. Uh, Tom Cruise touches the emperor at one point that's not possible that was ridiculous and the emperor speaking in english was like that no no yeah well well, we won't get into movie accuracies because i'm sure uh, you could go on a freaking tangent about that too well funny uh, funny really he was that young Uh, how exactly does that come to be that he's the what was the exact rite of passage in japan was it lineage? Was it uh, like ranking military? What? Who decided who was the next emperor and how all that came to be? Oh, it's lineage. Like when, it's uh, it's yeah. full lineage. Okay. Actually, there. Uh, it's weird to say after after him, there's going to be one. I don't know if it's his son or it's his grandson. One of them is uh, quote unquote. He has some mental handicap issues, and they kept him in power even though he was not capable mentally and again it was like a hostage situation the court was actually controlling and then we eventually we get Hirohito uh, who will be the emperor during World War II uh, and uh, despite what a lot of people thought for a long time Hirohito had a very active role in um, a lot of the things that happened in World War II he was not some innocent bystander like people were told for a long time Well, that definitely makes it a little bit clearer. Clarify a little bit about the names and all that who's who type of thing. I can actually take the time because you brought up The Last Samurai. Uh, People probably not surprised. Uh, I already, I haven't edited it yet. I already have done a film review. And uh, I can give some background as to why I would 
do a review of such an overly reviewed movie you know i did this motion war episode and uh hint hints next one is the satsuma rebellion because they kind of go hand in hand during the meiji restoration the key player during the Boshin War, uh, Saigo Takamori, the leader of Satsuma, he leads a rebellion called the Satsuma Rebellion, and that's the last stand of the samurai, basically. The reason why I did a review of the last samurai movie was more so to kind of educate people on it's it's not historically accurate, obviously. They, they uh, arguably, they weren't going for historical accuracy with that movie. They were melding. It's actually the Boshin War and the Satsuma Rebellion into one. And that's why you have Tom Cruise's character, who would have been a uh, Jules Burnett, a French military advisor, 10 years earlier than the events of the movie. He's there for some reason. And Ken Watanabe's character, Katsumoto, is uh, obviously supposed to be Saigo Takamori. And uh, he's with Tom Cruise. And Tom Cruise is an American military advisor and for some reason fights uh during a satsuma rebellion it's a little weird but uh when my episode comes out i think I'll, I'll i'll give a little bit of a spin on it a lot of people haven't um cynical historian uh he did a review of this uh, he doesn't touch the subjects i touch and of course the number one person on youtube who does history film reviews history buffs i really made sure not to do exactly what he did because he's going to be the king he's the grandfather of all these videos and obviously he sets the stage everyone looks to him for these things i really try to do my own thing and i i spun a lot more history in it mm. it's gonna be oh. uh, it's gonna be fun oh, i'm gonna check that one out oh the film reviews are hit or miss i uh talk about it here my my last episode that i put out was a review of a japanese film called when the last sword is drawn it is a film about two Shin Sengumi during the, the Boshin War. And what makes this film kind of unique is it's, they're kind of regular people. They have problems that are real problems and it showcases like what it's like to be a, a samurai in poverty. Many were in poverty during this time and the hardship that one would have to face when you're putting your family's life against your shogun. You know, you have to choose. Yeah, well, I think kind of throughout history, those who didn't have money or power kind of got the shit end of the stick and basically had to deal with whatever they were dealt. Definitely. Oh, here, but, uh, there's some Shinsengumi. And they actually did have uniforms with the bright blue and the white. It's very interesting. Uh, yeah. Well, I can't wait to see that episode on the uh, the film review. And... Uh, like you said, what uh, what are the next episodes coming out other than that? As Correct. far as specific war goes? So for the actual episodes, the next one will be the Setsuma Rebellion. Followed, obviously, by a podcast on it. And there will be the last Samurai Review. I haven't actually even begun my research on some future episodes. But the next major episode on history should be on the first Sino-Japanese War, if I don't find something else in the meantime, because there is actually a large amount of Filipinos watching this, and they have asked on my Twitter account to do kind of a... I said I wanted to do a brief history of either South... Sorry, not South Korea. Either a brief history on Korea during this time period, or the Philippines, or you know, it could be Kyushu. It could be anywhere. I asked uh, some polls in the Philippines one. 
that's not my background. I don't know much outside of, you know, what happens just before World War II. So it's going to be fun if I do that. But uh, I think I'll be doing uh, the first Sino-Japanese War. I do have a surprise in store, though. I have something I'm working on right now, and it's another film review of a film that came out recently called The 800. This film is about a legendary last stand during the Battle of Shanghai in 1937, where... 452 Chinese soldiers fought 20,000 Japanese over a warehouse that stands to this day as a memorial. Yeah, it's one of the craziest battles ever. Kind of the Chinese version of 300. It's exactly how I opened up the episode. (laughs) It's It's been described by an author as the Stalingrad of Asia. He actually called it the Stalingrad on the Yangtze River because of how uh, it was horrible. The, the Battle of Shanghai is, I can tell it here, we have time. Um, China was not prepared for World War II. They had Germans training their military and giving them equipment in the 30s, but there was no time to do this. And the Japanese military was just so much bigger and better than them. So when they got attacked... Um, They tried to just pretend there wasn't a war going on. So in 1931, the Japanese prod them. The Chinese are unwilling to actually say that there's a war. And the Japanese don't want anyone to think it's a war either because both sides will get embargoed by countries because, you know, two countries go to war. Everyone tries to embargo the hell out of them. So they do this kind of quasi-war in the 30s. And then in 37, the shit hits the fan, so to say. And they kind of even though it's actually still unofficial, the war really kicks off and they're being invaded by the Japanese just everywhere in the Eastern part. So the leader of the national party of China, Chiang uh, Kai-shek, he says, I have one super overpowered division, which is equipped with German equipment. And it's been trained by Germans. It's my best of the best. He takes the small amount of tanks he has, any motorized vehicles, the best he has of everything. He makes it all into like just a few divisions and he shoves it in Shanghai. He tries to get the Japanese to come into Shanghai and he just tries to keep them there and stuck there as long as possible because inside Shanghai is an international settlement that's uh, controlled by British, French, Germans, and the Japanese. Can't be touched. Can't enter it. Can't bomb it, certainly. So the Japanese are put right beside it. This warehouse in question is actually on the other side of a river to it. The Japanese can't do crazy artillery. They can't even use their planes in this area. So Chiang Kai-shek is like, if I have my best fighters, I could really prolong this. And at the same time, it's going to be in the view of all the Western powers. So he's trying to get sympathy. He wants people to come to his side because, you know, he's, they're being invaded. Okay, right? yeah, he's kind of... He's kind of opening the curtains and showing the West, uh, look what's happening to us. Look what these guys are doing to our, uh, our communal area. Okay, that's kind of sneaky. And uh, it's also, I'm not much uh, as far as tactics are concerned. It's like you said, it's like the Battle of Thermopylae. You're bottlenecking in an area where the Japanese can't use artillery or planes and stuff in certain parts because they're too afraid to hit this international zone, which is a, a large zone. So the Japanese are like, oh, this, this sucks. Japanese still, like, they start stomping them. I think in three months' time, they, they've beaten them out. So all these forces have to escape from the east to the west of Shanghai to just try and get away. Shanghai is taking all this industry. He's moving it out of there into the interior of the country. So this is buying him time to try and get his factories away because, you know, he needs to make more uh, military arms. 
And uh, the last stand is at the Seahang Warehouse, where the movie The 800 is about. So I'm telling you, the, it's actually on YouTube for free. It's funny. All these Chinese films, you can find them easily on YouTube. It's brutal. It's like, it's uh, the sniper shots are crazy in it. I've never seen anything like it. It's a really well done movie. And I've seen quite a few of these Chinese horror films. And this is like the most unique one ever, because got to remember, China... I don't like talking about them so much right now on this podcast. I'm a little afraid, but you know, they're a communist government uh, and they don't let a lot of things appear in movies. I'll say it like that. This is certain censorship in this film. They glorify the nationalist flag of China. So the Chinese who left to become Taiwan, the enemy, that's kind of like the enemy of the communist China they glorify them in this film. It's like one of the first times I've ever seen it. And they do it like large scale. Like there's like men dying for the flag in a scene. There's it's heroic. Really? The, even the Japanese soldiers, usually in these films, they're shown to be subhuman kind of monsters. They're just shown like guys doing their job in this. It was very good film. Director did an excellent <laughs> job. He's a, he's a fan of uh, Hollywood war films. And if you've seen enemy at the gates, you immediately recognize this movie. He went for like the same kind of feel. Huh. Yeah. Well, we'll have to take a look at that. So the only thing I'll say about it is if people don't like um, straight up war films, don't watch it. It's not much as far as story because it's, it it throws you into the action and you don't even get to know most of the characters. They're killed like, like off the bat, like everyone just dies. Well, I guess in a sense they're trying to make it, they're trying to stick to that accuracy whereas in wartime there often isn't discussion there often isn't uh negotiation on the spot it's just kaboom kaboom and whatever happens happens but we'll get uh, more into that i think when we when we watch the episodes together there and we can have some discussions afterwards i think for the people who don't know anything about the history it's going to be a really silly movie for them because from the viewpoint of someone who doesn't know what's going on they're going to see Japanese people in their in their army uniforms and then they're going to see a bunch of Chinese in what would appear as like World War 1, World War 2, not like German uniforms. Like they have the same stadt helmets and like the uni- it's the gray black kind of like material and everything. So it's inter- I think it's going to be interesting for people who don't know so much about the uh the war over China in that period. Yeah, we'll have to take a look. Uh, I think I probably, I didn't, I didn't think I was going to say anything about this, but I uh, want to thank everybody who listens to this on whatever podcast platform you're downloading it from. All of you audio listeners, um, past a thousand downloads. I don't know how good that really is because analytics on this are skeptical. Apparently, if you get more than like 200 downloads a month, you're doing well. I don't know. I read that somewhere. So thank you. It's interesting because I'm a YouTube channel. So if you don't know that already, please go check out my YouTube. I certainly need likes and comments the most right now. It's crazy. The algorithm is really against me. And I'm a small channel. It's hard to compete with the, uh, the big boy channels. I got to support two parrots. Cost a lot of seeds, you know. Yeah, well, like we said too in the in the past episodes, always if anybody had any questions, comments, or if you're like me and you didn't understand a damn thing in an episode, feel free to ask. We're always happy to clarify uh, from either of our viewpoints, or you know, Craig can elaborate more on certain periods, certain uh, 
pre- pretty much anything that's confusing, not clear, or just you want to know a little bit more about, uh, we're always happy to delve more into a topic if we know uh, that's what you guys want to hear about. In unless, this case, uh, it was me that needed the clarification. So, Unless it's the pronunciation of provinces within China or names. I can actually, once... I have a podcast with this individual. I won't say his name because I don't know what he wants me to call him. He might, you know, might not want to be in the public. Uh, who knows where that's going to go? He, this guy seems very enthusiastic about working with me, and I would be it'd be really cool to actually get. Uh, I don't know. I think his background actually is in Chinese history too. It would be interesting to uh, hear what he has to say about things like the Taiping Rebellion and the lasting effects of it. I never got to talk about that. It's, the, I think it. Arguably, it's the second bloodiest thing to happen in the world. It rippled through history. It really caused a lot of mayhem. Yep, it definitely did. Well, I think we're going to end it there, and I will check the audio later to see if I have to cry or not. I know the video quality is not great in this laptop. Uh, it'll do. That's all right. You weren't that pretty to begin with. I think so. Though I, I will acknowledge I've gotten three comments from three different people about doing uh, my show without a shirt on. Uh, I'll think about it. I'll One of them might have been me, but thought so, buddy. <laughs> yeah, well, it's been a pleasure to be here as always. Uh, hopefully, we'll pick it up next episode and we'll see what we talk about then. This has been the Pacific War Channel Podcast, over and out.